<clears throat> this hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on State Department Management will come to order. Thank you all for being here today to hear from the nominees to some very important positions that will allow these Americans to proudly represent the United States abroad. We have nominees for ambassador to two countries, Costa Rica and Finland, both of which we share strong diplomatic ties. A nominee for U.S. Executive Director for the International Bank for Development and Reconstruction and Director of Office of Foreign Missions, which remains very important as we seek to secure our diplomatic facilities abroad and the Americans working there. I understand most of you have already been through this process and are coming back for a second go-around. It's Corey's and my first, so you'll be patient with us today, won't you? Um, however, I was not here last Congress, so I appreciate your forbearance today, and uh, we'll move right through this uh, as expeditiously as, ex expeditiously as we can. With that, I would like to uh, recognize Senator, uh, uh, sorry, we'll move right through this since he's not here about that. Our first nominee, uh, I'm just going to highlight this just briefly, apologize for this, but uh, I want to go through this. Our first nominee, Mr. Stafford Fitzgerald Haney, who is nominated to be ambassador to Costa Rica. Mr. Haney currently serves as director of business development and client services at Xena Investment Management, has served in positions with PepsiCo and Citibank in some major Latin American countries, such as Brazil, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. He graduated from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service with a master's and bachelor's degree. Our second nominee today is Mr. Matthew T. McGuire, who is nominated to be United States Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development for a term of two years. Mr. McGuire has held multiple positions at the Department of the Treasury and Commerce, and prior to that, he had a very successful career in the finance industry. Mr. McGuire is a graduate of Brown University and has degrees from the University of London and Harvard. Our third nominee is Mr. Gentry O. Smith, who is nominated to be Director of the Office of Foreign Missions with the rank of Ambassador. Mr. Smith is a career foreign service officer who <clears throat> started with the State Department in 1987. He has served in many posts overseas, including Cairo, Tokyo, and Burma, as well as the Secretary of State's protected detail. He also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary and Assistant Director for Countermeasures. Mr. Smith is a graduate of North Carolina State University. Our fourth nominee is Mr. Charles C. Adams, Jr., who is nominated to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Finland. Mr. Adams is currently Senior <clears throat> Counsel at Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Field, LLP. He has led a successful career, spending much of his time living in Geneva, Switzerland as a managing partner for various law firms. He's a graduate of Dartmouth University, or Dartmouth College, and University of Virginia School of Law. Thank you all for being here today and sharing your thoughts and viewpoints with us today. We would remind you all that your full statements will be included in the record, as it was the last time you were here, without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, we would appreciate that so members of the committee can engage with you on these matters. And we'll move as expeditiously as we can. With that, we'll take statements, starting with uh, Mr. Haney first, please. Chairman Perdue, uh, Senator Gardner, thank you. Um, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the next United States Ambassador to Costa Rica. I'm profoundly humbled by this opportunity to serve and thank the President and the Secretary of State for the confidence they have placed in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you and your colleagues in Congress to protect U.S. citizens in Costa Rica, deepen the bonds that unite our countries, and advance U.S. interests in Central America. With the Chairman's permission, I'd like to acknowledge friends and family without whose support I would not be here today. 
starting with my wife, Rabbi Andrea Haney, and my children, Asher, Nava, Ed, and Shia, who are at home watching, hopefully. Um, if I'm confirmed, my wife and our four children will be joining me in San Jose, and it is only through their love and support that I'm here today. I'd also like to mention my mother, father, and brother, may they rest in peace, who are here today with us in our hearts. My mother, Sandra Haney, was and still is my hero. She's also a link in a long line of family that has in various ways served our country proudly. From a fifth great granduncle who fought in the Revolutionary War, to my brother who served both overseas and at home, to my great uncle who recently received an honorary doctorate in public service and was recognized by the Tennessee State Legislature, to my mother's marches and sit-ins to protest what she saw as injustices not compatible with America we aspire to be, we have a long and proud tradition of serving our nation. It is in my mother's honor and in her memory that I hope, if I am confirmed, to dedicate my service. Costa Rica is an important ally in a region of critical strategic importance to the United States. It is the most stable democracy in Central America and has long held traditions of protecting human rights and freedom of expression are a model for the region. Its strong commitment to investing in education and health has helped Costa Rica achieve literacy, life expectancy, infant mortality, and income levels that are significantly better than elsewhere in Central America. It is no surprise that these positive attributes have attracted significant numbers of Americans to the country. Today, approximately 100,000 U.S. citizens call Costa Rica home, and more than one million visit annually. If confirmed, their safety and well-being will be my top priority. Despite its successes, Costa Rica, like its neighbors, confronts many challenges, including security challenges, as international drug trafficking organizations and organized crime increasingly penetrate Central America. The United States and Costa Rica enjoy an excellent partnership in security cooperation. If confirmed, I will continue to work with the government of Costa Rica to ensure that organized crime does not undermine the country's economy and democratic institutions. Another of my highest priorities will be promoting greater Central American integration. As outlined in the strategy for U.S. engagement in Central America, the region will not prosper without better regional cooperation on trade, infrastructure development, strengthened democratic institutions, energy integration, and investment. Given its stability and relative prosperity, Costa Rica can and should play a critical role in advancing our strategy in Central America. It can and should lead in working to create conditions in Central America that are conducive to reducing poverty and violence and creating jobs and opportunity, and it should serve as an example of what is possible in the region. President Solis is committed to working to promote regional integration and prosperity, and if confirmed, I will support him in those efforts. I have many years' experience living and working in international business in Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, and Brazil. I understand the region and the challenges it faces. As President Solis made clear during his first year in office, Costa Rica is serious about improving its business climate and attracting additional foreign investment. It confirmed my private sector experience will be an asset to helping Costa Rica achieve um, those goals. It would also serve me in working to advocate for stronger intellectual property protection, promote entrepreneurship, and public-private partnerships, and ensure that U.S. companies and investors encounter a fair and level playing field for doing business in Costa Rica. If confirmed, I will work closely with Costa Rica to advance the many other policy objectives and priorities the United States and Costa Rica share. Costa Rica shares our commitment to protecting democratic freedoms and human rights and is vigilantly resisting any attempts to weaken the inter-American human rights system. This support for basic human rights, democracy, and freedom has never been more important in the region than today. Costa Rica is an international leader with important initiatives to mitigate and adapt to climate change and promote renewable energy use and sustainable development. I believe Costa Rica can become a regional hub of innovation and has the potential to assume a leadership role in advancing good governance and prosperity throughout Central America. As our dedicated team at Embassy San Jose states, 
A safe, prosperous, and green Costa Rica not only benefits the citizens of both of our nations, but also the entirety of Central America. Mr. Chairman, committee members, I thank you again for your consideration of my nomination to serve as ambassador to Costa Rica, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Mr. Haney. Um, Mr. McGuire. Thank you, Chairman Perdue, and thank you for uh, convening us today and chairing this session. Thank you also to Senator Kane for presiding today, and uh, Senator Gardner, thank you for coming. It seems appropriate that I congratulate Senators Perdue and Senator Gardner for your recent victories and for joining the Senate. Uh, it's quite an honor, and it's uh, always good to have fresh thinking and fresh blood up here. Um, I'd also like to just thank my mother, who is here today, Georgiana McGuire. Uh, I was noting earlier with a few people that last time I did this, I had aunts and uncles and in-laws and all sorts of people. You do it a second time, you get mom. Uh, and I'm, I'm, thrilled to, I'm thrilled to have her, but it's a lesson to everybody here. Uh, um, it's, it's an honor and a privilege, of course, to uh, be here as President Obama's nominee as Executive Director for the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, otherwise known as, as the World Bank. Uh, rather than read the full statement I sent over for formal record, I'd like to briefly discuss my career to date and then frame how I would approach the role of executive director if I were to be confirmed. Um, so with that, I, I'd just say that during the first part of my career, I taught and was focused on issues related to economic and development policy, both in the U.S. and abroad. I got a Ph.D. in anthropology from Harvard, finishing in 1988, and my dissertation was on the redevelopment of public housing in Chicago. During that time, I also spent several months in Ethiopia and Eritrea, researching the relationship between those countries shortly after the end of their 30-year-long war. And when I finished my PhD, I ran a welfare-to-work job training program in New York before joining a firm that helped U.S. cities redevelop public housing projects into mixed-income communities. In 2003, I moved into the financial services industry, and I spent the next eight years working for several mutual fund and hedge fund companies, raising capital and serving as a senior executive in three entrepreneurial and dynamic firms. During that time, I began to more fully understand the role that financial markets play in our economy and how interconnected the global economy is as a result of the ease with which capital moves across national borders, industry sectors, and asset classes. In an era where CEOs and investors can deploy each dollar or euro or real almost anywhere in the world at almost a moment's notice, it is increasingly important that countries like ours pay close attention to their financial positions and that they strive to maintain and strengthen the integrity of their capital markets. That view has been strengthened by my experience and my time over the last four years at the Department of Commerce and at the Department of the Treasury where I've worked closely with U.S. businesses on a range of issues, including many related to international trade. Should this committee and the full Senate confirm me, I will strive to be a sound steward of our country's capital at the bank at all times. I will work to ensure that each dollar we commit is used to support the values that have proven so durable since America's founding, that open societies are the strongest societies, that transparent systems are the most successful systems, and that those countries which endeavor to give all of their citizens a fair shot at becoming educated, being healthy, and achieving economic independence are the countries that will succeed no matter where they happen to be located. Those are just a few of the values I've watched President Obama champion for many years now, and I would be honored to carry them forward on his behalf, on the country's behalf, as the executive director of the bank. I look forward to answering any questions you might have, and I thank you again for allowing me to come before you today. Thank you, Mr. McGuire. Mr. Smith. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Senator Kane, I'm honored to appear before you today as President, Obama, President Obama's nominee to be the next director of the Office of Foreign Missions, OFM. I am proud, profoundly grateful for the confidence that the President and Secretary Kerry have demonstrated in nominating me for this unique and important position. My entire professional life has been dedicated to public service, beginning as my, in my first career as a police officer in Raleigh, North Carolina, to my assignments in embassies in Tokyo, Rangoon, and Cairo, and my most recent as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Countermeasures for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. I've strived in each to improve the conditions uh, which our colleagues live and work. I believe my dedication and commitment to, in this regard will serve me well if given the opportunity to lead the Office of Foreign Missions uh, as an organization its primary goal is being to use reciprocity to ensure the equitable treatment of U.S. diplomatic and consular missions and personnel abroad, regulating the activities of foreign missions in the United States to protect our foreign policy and national security interests, protecting our U.S. public uh, against abuses of privileges and immunities by foreign uh, missions operating here in the U.S., and uh, providing services uh, and assistance to foreign missions that are located here uh, on a reciprocal basis. As you're aware of OFM, it was established in 1982 under the Foreign Missions Act. In passing the act, Congress made it clear that the operations of uh, foreign missions in the United States are a proper subject for the exercise of federal jurisdiction. For more than 30 years, the act guided the department's management and extension of foreign missions in the United States for its privileges and benefits associated with uh, acquiring real property, uh, motor vehicle and, and uh, driving services for tax exemptions, customs clearances, domestic travel courtesies, and restrictions. The committee is well aware of the department's ongoing efforts to ensure that our personnel abroad work in facilities that are safe and secure and functional. I can authoritatively attest that the relocation of an American embassy is a complex and challenging task. To accomplish this job, the United States must have the interest and support of the, of the host governments. In many countries, such support is there for the asking. In countries where the support is lacking, OFM plays a critical role in assisting the resolution of impasses we sometimes face with foreign governments during our attempts to acquire real property in those countries and relocating and constructing our facilities. When a country has an interest in improvement or, re or relocating one of its missions in the U.S., the Office of Foreign Mission uses its ability to regulate the acquisition and the use of real property by foreign missions as a leverage to achieve the department's own property-related needs in that country. Without OFM uh, the, and its authorities under the Foreign Missions Act, we may not have been able to build a U.S. embassy in Beijing or a new annex that's currently under construction there. This and more was achieved as a result of reciprocity in the, in the uh, Foreign Missions Act. In closing, Mr. Chairman, I'm honored to have the opportunity to address you and the esteemed members of the committee. And if confirmed, I will do all that I can to further the important objectives that Congress has set out of under the Foreign Missions Act. Uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you and to ensure the proper treatment of our foreign personnel serving abroad. And as importantly, the foreign missions uh, that are here, that they continue to re react as good neighbors. Thank you for the opportunity and your consideration for, our, for my nomination, and I respectfully ask that my full statement be entered into the record. Without objection, it certainly will. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Adams? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Kane, 
Uh, it's a renewed pleasure uh, to have the opportunity of appearing today before this committee. Uh, it's a tremendous honor to have been renominated by the president uh, for this post. And I thank both the president and Senator, uh, Secretary Kerry for the uh, confidence that they've shown in me. If confirmed, I very much look forward to working with you and with your colleagues in Congress to further U.S. interests in Finland. Mr. Chairman, with your kind permission, uh, I'd like to say a few words, to repeat a few words, actually, that I said uh, on a previous occasion with respect to the reasons why, for me, uh, if confirmed, the privilege of serving as an ambassador of the United States has deep personal significance. My, my late father, Charles C. Adams, dedicated the entirety of his professional career to representing the United States as an officer of the Foreign Service. Supported throughout by my late mother, uh, Florence Schneider Adams, and they and, and what came over time to be a family of six children spent many years in posts around the world with stints in between back home here in Washington, principally in Europe and, and Africa. And so I, I had the opportunity as a, as a foreign service brat to witness at first hand from the perspective of a kid at the time, the enormous skill and savvy and dedication and, and personal courage that my parents brought to their service, to their country, as did also all of the other men and women of the Foreign Service with whom they were privileged to serve. And I saw also the, the burdens and the sacrifices that they were prepared to endure in serving their country. Now, after my own service in the Peace Corps in uh, East Africa, from 1968 to 1970, I chose to go into the private sector. And I spent more than 40 years in uh, the practice of international law and policy at high levels. But throughout this time, I've always had very close to my heart the idea that as a, as a salute to the memory of my mom and dad and to the magnificent men and women of the Foreign Service with whom they served, that I, in turn, might someday be afforded the profound privilege of serving my country as an ambassador of the United States. And I have to say that in the six months of uh, holding pattern, in effect, since I last had the privilege of appearing before this committee, the sentiment on my part, far from having in any way been diluted or diminished, has in fact been reinforced. And so I do thank you very much indeed for the opportunity of reappearing before this committee today. I'm very excited that the President 
should have asked me to represent the United States in Finland. Finland is a very close partner of the United States. It's been a member of the European Union since uh, 1995, has developed an innovation-led economy, has worked very closely with the United States as a partner in the Partnership for Peace of NATO, and has supported the United States in Afghanistan and elsewhere in promoting human rights and security around the globe. As to the matter of shared security, ever since 1950, Finland has been a very dedicated participant in UN peacekeeping missions around the world. And although not a member of NATO, it is, as I've mentioned, a participant in NATO's Partnership for Peace program. And Finland maintains a very high level of cooperation and interoperability with the NATO alliance. It regularly participates in joint training missions with the US and its allies, including joint air training uh, later this very month uh, with uh, Sweden and Estonia and the United States Air Forces. And Finland is one of the largest contributors to the OSCE special monitoring mission in uh, Ukraine with uh, 19 uh, observers on the ground uh, currently and very substantial contributions as well to the uh, observation force in respect of the U Ukraine elections uh, last year. The Finnish government has also contributed troops to the resolute support mission in Afghanistan, has suffered fatalities along with others of our allies, and it has pledged $8 million a year from 2015 through 2017 in further support of the Afghan national security forces. Finland has also taken the lead on the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 in respect of uh, women's rights and participation of women in uh, Afghan civil society. Secondly, the United States and Finland share the vision of a strong, robust transatlantic economy that delivers benefits for all of our citizens. That is why, if confirmed, one of my very top priorities will be increasing economic cooperation between our two countries through expanded bilateral trade and investment. The United States is currently Finland's fourth largest customer and sixth largest supplier with bilateral trade valued at in excess of $7 billion. I believe that we can do still more and enhance the position of the United States as a principal valued trading partner of Finland. I will work closely also with the Finns on the increasing importance of the Arctic region. As you know, the United States is about to take over on April 25th the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. And the Finns will have the next succeeding chairmanship of the Arctic Council in 2018 and 2019. As to our shared values, the United States and Finland have a relationship which continues to thrive because of the strong people-to-people -people ties between our two nations. And these relationships are the lifeblood of our partnership. I can recall having had as a college student at Dartmouth uh, a summer job as an escort interpreter uh, with the Department of State. And I had the occasion to uh, participate 
in the International Visitors uh, Program as uh, an interpreter with delegations from abroad. And it happens that uh, Finland, in participating in these IVP programs over the years, now has, as alumni, many senior members of the Finnish government, including President Ninisto, Prime Minister Stubb, and other important figures in Finland's government who came to see the United States as young students at the time. I apologize for interrupting. Uh, could we move to a conclusion? Yes. Uh, just well, so we can I, move I this along. I apologize. I'm trying to keep this my own schedule here. Thank you. Well, I, I thank you for your attention. Uh, no, they're Mr. very Chairman. eloquent remarks. I apologize for uh, closing that off. But uh, it must be easier the second time, guys. You did very well. Um, uh, as we said in the opening remarks, uh, this is a, uh, the second time you've been here. I appreciate your forbearance. Um, I have a couple of questions of my own here to, um, for the record. Uh, and then uh, we'll move to the uh, ranking member, uh, Senator Kane, uh, for his remarks and, and questions as well. I'll try to be brief. I appreciate your forbearance today. Um, and I'm glad your mom's here, uh, Mr. McGuire. Uh, Mr. Haney, uh, as, as ambassador to Costa Rica, what would your top policy priorities be as you approach that country? I mean, I, I, it's one of the shining stars, as you said, in, in Central America and indeed Latin America. Um, and what can we do uh, to, to raise our cooperation together to, to the next level? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question. I think the, the broad policy objectives that I would have in Costa Rica very much mirror and align with the broader objectives we have within Central America, as they were recently outlined in the strategy for U.S. engagement in Central America. So specifically, one would be promoting um, prosperity and economic integration from a regional perspective, enhancing security, as well as promoting um, improved governance. And I think Costa Rica can both benefit from our our focus on these areas as well as help us really do some of the heavy lifting um, that we need in, in the region. So for example, on the prosperity and regional integration, Costa Rica has done fairly well relatively, as you said, it is a shining star within the region and within Latin America. It's 40% of the trade of the CAFTA-DR, the free trade agreement within the region. But there's still other areas that they can um, take advantage of within this trade intra-regionally. And to do that, they need to address things such as the high cost of power, as well as the transportation infrastructure, um, and facilitating trade on an intra-regional basis. Um, this will go, I think that's an overlapping priority that we have with the Solis government, and that's something that we could work on with them. As far as enhancing security goes, um, Costa Rica's done an excellent job Coming from the private sector, I always look at return on investment. Or, um, and so what does the US taxpayer get for the um, investment we're making in our partner countries? And Costa Rica by far has probably done one of the best jobs in the region on security cooperation. Um, last year, they seized more cocaine than any other country in Central America. And it was 30% more than the previous year. In the last four years, it's continued to grow up. Um, so that I think we can continue to work on security with the Costa Ricans. Um, and then I think very much and very importantly for Costa Rica and for the United States is that our relationship is at a different level now. It's, it's, it has matured to the point where we look at Costa Rica as an asymmetrical partner in helping us address some of the key issues in the region. And so I would hope to be able to um, help the Costa Ricans um, perhaps do some of their um, some of the initiative building activity that they can do to take some of their experience in promoting 
human rights and democracy, um, education, as well as economic development and transport that to the rest of the region as well. Thank you. Mr. McGuire, what, what's your impression of the coordination between the World Bank and the regional development banks? More broadly, in light of the request of the general capital increases from these institutions, what do you see as the division of labor between these institutions, and how should Congress think about and prioritize those requests? Sure. So on the first of those questions, the coordination there, uh, it is ongoing, it is consistent. The World Bank obviously is considerably larger than the others, the African Development Bank, the Inter-American, the Asian Development Bank, the European uh, Development Bank. Um, and so there's always a discussion back and forth, and as many people have explained it to me, people often take the World Bank's lead. So the practices and the policies at the bank are quite consequential in terms of uh, the, the practices of some of the others. Um, certainly, were I to be confirmed, uh, I already know some of the other executive directors, or at least the executive director at the Inter-American Development Bank. I know the people, the woman who's been nominated for African Development Bank. I certainly look forward to maintaining and strengthening those relationships, and then making sure that staff are talking where and how's appropriate as well. So that's the first piece. In terms of the division of labor, uh, the World Bank has extraordinary expertise in, in uh, any number of countries around the world. Uh, that said, one can always get even more expertise from those who are on the ground who are focusing just on a particular region. And so certainly I expect for an intellectual exchange. In terms of projects themselves, I think that's a discussion that should be an ongoing one. And there are certain banks which have greater expertise in certain areas, let's say on um, uh, uh, financial reform or education. The bank has a particularly strong uh, team thinking about infrastructure and public health, and I think we ought to play to our strengths and make sure that we're uh, not just overlapping all the time, but that we're complementary in how projects fit with one another. Um, and then there are instances where there are particular projects that are larger, perhaps a little riskier, where we actually do want to be alongside one another to spread out some of that risk and to make sure that uh, we're really utilizing U.S.'s contributions to all the banks most effectively. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Smith, um, What do you consider the, to be the OFM's highest priorities and how do you perceive your potential role in achieving them? I mean, you've served the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary and Assistant Director for Countermeasures and Bureau of Diplomatic Security since uh, 2009, I think. That's, that's um, correct. You know, what, how do you perceive your role in, in, in achieving those priorities? Uh, Senator, as I stated during my uh, previous uh, testimony here, uh, my highest priority will be uh, ensuring the equitable treatment of our personnel who serve in facilities abroad by the host governments uh, under which they operate, and also uh, make sure that our nat nat national interests and foreign policy interests here in the U.S. are protected by regulating the activities of those foreign missions that are located uh, here in the U.S. Uh, how we'll do that is by remaining engaged with uh, the various regional bureaus at the State Department, along with their uh, regional executive directors who have day-to-day -day interaction with those embassies and with our embassies and consulates that are around the world to make sure that they, uh, any issues that come up that we can address from a, from a perspective of reciprocity, that, that we can do that. Uh, I'll also, of course, stay in close contact with the Undersecretary for Management and the Chiefs of Missions at those embassies so that if I personally have to 
be engaged in any of those activities to bring about resolution that I can do that as well. And as I said during my uh, last testimony, of course, I will remain engaged with the Congress, with the members here, and with your committees uh, if there are specific issues of interest that we can resolve as well. Great. Thank you. My time has expired um, in the second round. I have one, one more question for Mr. Adams, but uh, um, uh, the ranking member, we're going to waive the uh, time constraint uh, on this since uh, he uh, hasn't had a chance for his opening remarks. So, um, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all the witnesses. I have uh, voted for you once already, so I'm not going to ask questions and make you think I'm trying to satisfy myself whether I made a mistake or not. Um, I, I very much support you. I congratulate you on the renomination. I also want to say, you know, uh, Mr. Adams, your, your story about your own family's personal history is a very touching one, but it, all, it, it really does call to mind the tremendous sacrifice that our Foreign Service professionals make, and three of you, I guess, will have the, the title of ambassador and then Mr. McGuire, you'll be executive director, but you're all ambassadors, but you also, also, you also work, will be working with some fantastic small A ambassadors. As I travel uh, to do CODELs as part of this committee, when I'm in another country, I almost always will meet with first and second tour foreign service officers, the, the newcomers to the uh, State Department family to ask them about their lives and their perceptions and answer their questions. And I always come back, uh, Senator Cornyn and I were in Latin America three weeks ago, I always come back with a high degree of uh, real inspiration for the service. I think we do a good job of thanking our military who serve in harm's way these days, but an awful lot of our non-military personnel who serve overseas, who get sent to places that may not be their first choice, sometimes to places where they can't bring family, sometimes to places where there's physical danger. Um, it's really important work, and so you will be working with wonderful colleagues, and I know that you'll express that appreciation to them every day that you serve. Um, to just maybe go left or right, uh, Mr. Adams, I want to ask you about uh, you know, the, we had a hearing this morning about Russia and the Ukraine, and we've had a lot of hearings about Russia in the months since you were here and about what's happening. Talk a little bit about the, the Finland-Russia relationship now, and in particular whether the sanctions that the U.S. and NATO have imposed on, the, on Russia are having an effect on the, on the economy of Finland. Uh, thank you, Senator. Let me address the second part of your question first, if I may. Finland, as you know, uh, is a very strong proponent of the sanctions regime against Russia and has implemented uh, those sanctions forcefully. Even though, uh, in as much as Finland uh, has a very active trading relationship with Russia, it is Finland which, among the EU countries, has probably paid the highest price in terms of the impact on its economy. Finland's exports to Russia in 2014 were down by 13% in respect of 2013, largely as a result of the direct sanctions and of the reduced value of the ruble, which impeded Russian purchasing power in respect to Finnish goods and services. Finland has stepped up and has made it clear that it is prepared not only to enforce existing sanctions, but to uh, advocate for enhanced and stronger sanctions to the extent that the crisis in Ukraine is not rapidly brought to a satisfactory close. The relationship between Finland uh, and Russia is ancestral. Uh, as you know, uh, Finland spent uh, over a century 
as a grand duchy of uh, the Tsar of Russia from 1809 to December 6 of 1917. There had been dealings before, there have been dealings after, including armed conflict. As you know, in uh, the course of the Second World War, Finland on two separate occasions uh, staved off uh, the assaults of the Red Army, incurring the admiration of the world in so doing. It's a delicate relationship. Finland uh, is very firmly anchored with the West in terms of its uh, values, in terms of its liberal political system, its democracy, in terms also of its sense of oneness with its neighbors to the West and, and to the South, even as Finland has sought to maintain a relationship with Russia that is based on shared respect and a concern for good neighborly proximity. And, and Finland has succeeded admirably in so doing. The crisis in the Ukraine has brought focus on Finland as a, an interlocutor and uh, bearer of messages to Russia which are heeded and paid close attention to by Russia because of the privileged posture of Finland and the respect with which Finland is held by Russia due to this relationship of several centuries standing. And if confirmed, I would look forward to working closely with the Finnish government in continuing to strive for a satisfactory and prompt resolution of the crisis in Ukraine to which Finland is uh, uniquely positioned to contribute. Thank you very much, Mr. Adams. Mr. Smith, um, the issue of the reciprocal treatment of U.S. Embassy and consular personnel in nations where they serve, and then our treatment of their uh, personnel here has, you know, had there's been some newsworthy um, instances in the last couple of years, most notably in some back and forth between the United States and India with respect to treatment of Indian embassy, consular personnel in New York, and then actions taken in India that challenged uh, some of the rights of our embassy personnel. The one that is ongoing right now that I'm just kind of curious about, I just returned from. Latin America with Senator Cornyn, and when we were in Colombia, there, there was an escalating tension uh, with the neighboring country of Venezuela. And my understanding is that Venezuela has sort of directed us to reduce our number of embassy and consular personnel from, I don't know, about 100 down to 17. There's about 80 Venezuelan consular personnel in the United States. I'm just curious if you have any insight as to how that you can share in an open setting as to how we're trying to work through that particular challenge to the credentials of our uh, embassy and consular personnel in, in Venezuela. Well, as you stated, Senator, as much as we can talk about it in an open session, which is, is, is rather limited, mm -hmm. uh, but I agree with you. Uh, we, we got the number of, that we needed to reduce down to 17. Uh, there are some, we're looking at the situation now because as you stated, there are more than 17 uh, dip, diplomats from Venezuela that are currently operating in the U.S. And so uh, we are still in the we will continue in negotiations and, and discussions with the government of Venezuela to come to a, a much more honest uh, record, uh, recognition of how many personnel they have here and uh, hopefully uh, be able to respond in a reciprocal way so that we can keep our numbers uh, pretty much uh, 
equal to what their numbers are. So it is still a situation that is developing. It's one that's still very much under study with the department and one which we may remain engaged with the Venezuelans on this particular issue. Great. Thank, thank you, Mr. Smith, for that. Uh, Mr. McGuire, um, I want to ask you about the activities of the um, IBRD in the Americas. Um, the President currently has a budget proposal in that's planned Central America. It's with respect to the Northern Triangle countries in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Um, the, the dramatic escalation in the number of unaccompanied minors coming to the United States from about an average of about 20,000 to 35,000 in 2013 to nearly 70,000 in 2014 drew a lot of attention to these three countries that have a, you know, one of the three of the worst murder rates in the world, huge amounts of poverty, um, and the President's proposal deals with kind of an all-encompassing strategy to help them deal with security challenges, fight narco-trafficking, and also do the kind of economic development and justice reforms that will enable the people to want to stay rather than, you know, have to leave their countries due to poverty and violence. Talk a little bit about the RDB kind of portfolio. It looks to be about a third of your activity is in the Americas. How, how can the RDB be an asset to this need to hopefully upgrade the security and economic situation in Central America so we, we don't see the push of unaccompanied minors coming to our country? Sure, I, I appreciate it. Uh, and I was actually in Colombia just last summer on a trade mission with the Commerce Department, so I've thought about a number of these issues from a regional perspective uh, myself recently. I'd say the, the first place I would start is, importantly, uh, to your point, realizing that there is an all-in strategy here in the sense that um, it, it, on certain matters, it'll be the State Department, which is able to take the lead and help the Northern Triangle countries in particular. In certain instances, it's USAID on the bilateral side. Uh, it's worth noting that 11 of the 21 countries with which the United States has free trade agreements are in this hemisphere. All three of the Northern Triangle countries are we have free trade agreements with. So there's an existing strong base there uh, for increasing commerce, which leads to increasing stability. That's really the part and parcel of what the World Bank is about, is stabilizing economies, growing economies, so that a lot of other problems uh, often can, can um, uh, fade away uh, so long as you're paying attention to them a little more directly, like security and some of the things that you're addressing. So I think that's important to realize there is a larger context here, and this is an ongoing uh, set of challenges that we're dealing with. Uh, in terms of the IBRD, you're right. I believe it's closer to a quarter of the overall portfolio is within uh, Latin America, so that's pretty significant. I would note that two, the two large economies within the region, the largest, Brazil and Mexico, are number one and number two in terms of total uh, port dedication or total uh, portfolio exposure, if you will, at the bank. So there's consistent and ongoing work. And I think the challenge for the bank is to continue to look at where it can have the greatest impact. One example I will use, and uh, please take it not as a recommendation to bank staff for where they ought to go, but when I was in Colombia, one of the things I heard an awful lot about is the great potential that the eastern region had for developing agriculture. It's a very fertile land. One of the big challenges that they have is uh, should that be fully developed, there are not enough roads and rail to get that both to market in the more densely populated regions to the west, but also for export. And so these sorts of infrastructure projects could be something uh, that would make a difference. Again, not making recommendations, but saying these are the kind of things that the bank and its expert staff continue looking at to say, well, how do 
we grow the economy? How do we diversify the economy? How do we give people multiple options so perhaps they're not drawn into some of the other activities that are going on down there? Um, and then finally, I would say, uh, getting back to my original point, it's, it's working in conjunction with all the other U.S. government um, uh, entities to make sure that we are working hand-in-hand -hand and not at cross-purposes so we can be most effective in trying to stabilize the region and help it to continue to grow. Thank you, Mr. McGuire. And finally, Mr. Haney, I want to congratulate you on this CODEL I was talking about. We spent about 35 minutes in the airport in Costa Rica, and the mere knowledge that we were there caused embassy officials to drive and meet with us in our layover and ask us penetrating questions about when Fitz Haney was going to be uh, confirmed by the Senate of the United States. And I thought if they drove all the way out to the airport about an hour from downtown, knowing we would have five minutes to talk on your behalf, that, that speaks well for the, the team that you will be working with. Um, Costa Rica, fascinating country, 120,000 American citizens approximately live there and more than a million Americans visit Costa Rica every year. As we're grappling with some of the issues I asked Mr. McGuire about, some of the security challenges in Central America, um, really two things. Um, wh what can we do to help Costa Rica share some of its expertise, civil justice system, for example, in Honduras. I'm very familiar with Honduras having lived there. One out of 100 murders leads to a conviction. So there's almost complete impunity for the most serious crime there is, and that means people don't cooperate with the courts or police. Why be a witness? Why tell somebody what you saw if there's not going to be a conviction anyway? And that is a fairly common thing in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. Costa Rica has a different tradition. I'm, I'm interested in what you might be able to do to help sort of share that tradition in the region because of the cultural similarities. But also I'm curious, is Costa Rica seeing any uptick in criminal activity? There's, there's a little bit of a squeezing the balloon phenomenon. The better we do in Colombia, the more we push some criminal activity elsewhere. When we invest in Plan Merida in Mexico, we push some criminal activity elsewhere. Is Costa Rica seeing uh, any escalation, especially in narco traffic, and what might the U.S. do to help them deal with that issue? Um, thank you, Senator, and thank the team in Embassy San Jose who drove out to, to advocate on my behalf. Um, I hope to be down there soon. Um, I, I, let me start with the second part of your question. I do think that's the, the importance of the entire approach, both from a U.S. government perspective as well as a strategic perspective, that we have to address this on a regional basis because of the success we have had in Colombia and the success we've had in Mexico. Um, you know, being, being a business person, my belief is that as people just develop distribution channels, they're going to ship through whatever they think they can make money on. Um, and so the countries in the middle, so all of Central America, have been squeezed and have all experienced an in uptick or increase in violence. And Costa Rica has not been spared um, that uptick. Um, last year, um, the murder rate went back up in Costa Rica, and it was most directly related to narco-trafficking. So I think that the fact that the country has, um, like I said, seized more drugs last year than any other country in the region. Um, and that was a 30% increase over the previous year, and it's been four years in a row, um, tells, I think, one of two things. One is that the Costa Ricans are a very willing and capable partner, and we need to continue to partner with them on um, initiatives around security. And two, probably other countries aren't doing as well as they should do. Um, um, if Costa Rica is number one in this. So I, I think they are exposed and we need to do everything we can to continue to support their democratic institutions so that they do not become um, as tainted or as, as fragile as the Northern Triangle institutions are. Now what can Costa Rica do? I do think that Costa Rica, given its, its strong traditions and given um, its relative success on democracy and human rights, 
can serve to, um, to help institution build within the region. And so I think our engagement, um, you know, we have not had an ambassador in Costa Rica now for almost two years. Um, and I think our high level engagement with the government of Costa Rica um, will help them really to move to the next level. Um, it's a natural impulse, I think, of the Solis government. Um, President Solis has said that Costa Rica cannot prosper if the rest of the region is not prospering as well. And I think that's a, that's a shift in mindset that the Costa Ricans have come to as of late. Um, and I think that we need to do everything we can to help them continue on that path. And so one of my priorities will be engaging um, both the Costa Rican government as well as broader civil society, really, because Costa Rica has a very deep and broad civil society, and seeing how can we bring training and other things um, from a judicial standpoint, um, some of the things that we've helped actually Costa Rica with um, through some of the CARSI funding we've done over the last five years to really export that expertise to the Northern Triangle to really help and help the Costa Ricans continue to realize that helping the Northern Triangle is actually helping them as well. I have no further questions, and thanks to all the witnesses. Thank you. I just have a quick question, Mr. Adams. Um, <clears throat> for the record, uh, as you think about uh, taking on this responsibility, and, and, and let me echo the ranking member's comment about your story. It is uh, very touching. Um, as you think about, though, taking on this responsibility, how do you see the priorities? What, what will be your main focus as you take on this uh, responsibility? Uh, Senator Perdue, I think that the first priority for any uh, United States ambassador has to be the safety and security of uh, embassy personnel and of U.S. citizens at large in the particular country. And certainly this is something that, if confirmed, I will have foremost in my mind every day of my service in Finland. Second, there is the matter that Senator Kane addressed uh, just now, uh, the resolution of the crisis in Ukraine and the role that can be played by Finland in a constructive sense working with the United States and with the European Union to communicate to the Russians the absolute necessity of finding a satisfactory resolution of this crisis quickly in order that the sanctions regime can gradually be diminished rather than strengthened still further. Thirdly is the matter of the expansion of the bilateral trade relationship between Finland and the United States, where, as I indicated, I believe that the United States can move up in the rankings, both as a customer uh, of Finland and as a supplier of goods and services to that country. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, thank you for your comments today and for your forbearance and for being here today. Your testimony is uh, in the record and uh, I'm very impressed. Just so you know, uh, we're gonna keep the record open in case uh, Senator Gardner or any other members of the committee have any last minute questions. Um, I don't know that there will be any, but uh, we ask that you respond to those if, if you get those in the next few days. And uh, again, I really wanna thank you for your willingness to serve our country. Uh, I'm very encouraged when I meet high-quality people with backgrounds like yours willing to serve. So thank you very much. With the thanks of this committee, uh, unless the ranking member has anything else, um, we'll stand adjourned. Thank you very much.